Welcome back, Hemming Brains, to the Brain Podcast Legendary Edition of Tolstoy, a genius torn between two worlds. I'm going to start with this post by Bookworm21, which was awesome. Uh, it's about an essay by Ishaya Berlin, who argues, There are two fundamental types of people, foxes and hedgehogs. This is from his essay called The Fox... No, sorry, it's called The Hedgehog and the Fox. Berlin discusses the deep differences between the two and digs into the exceptional case of Tolstoy, a genius stranded in the middle. Firstly, the hedgehog. There's a Greek saying, the fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. For hedgehogs, the one big thing is a single central vision that connects different experiences and varied facts. Hedgehogs arrange what they know in a holistic framework. Foxes, on the other hand, believe that no theories can possibly fit the immense variety of possible human behavior. The mind of a fox is scattered and capable of pursuing many different ends that may be unrelated and even contradictory. Some famous hedgehogs for Berlin were Nietzsche, Plateau, Dostoevsky. They had a fanatical inner vision. They connected different strands of knowledge with a thread that united them all. Their philosophy has a panoramic quality, wide and all-inclusive. Some famous foxes, on the other hand, were Herodotus, Aristotle, and Goethe. 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 How do you spell that? (laughs) G-O-E-T-H-E. They're all some famous foxes. Their vision of life was less panoramic and more kaleidoscopic. Foxes notice specific cases over general categories. For a fox, life has a vast multiplicity that can't be reduced to a single principle. I think I might be a fox then, just going off that. Uh, I think I always say, you know, case-by-case basis. Everything needs to be, at some level, considered on a case-by-case basis. You can't just thread everything together with some universal principle. Um, you know, so if you, if you talk in absolutes, you're always kind of forgetting about the exceptions of those rules. Anyway, Tolstoy was an exceptional case. Berlin writes that Tolstoy was a fox who desperately yearned to be a hedgehog. Tolstoy was hypersensitive to the minute details that composed life, and yet he wanted a universal story that connected it all. Tolstoy the fox... Tolstoy had an incurable love of the concrete, the empirical, and the verifiable. He intuitively distrusted anything abstract, and he mocked Napoleon in War and Peace as Napoleon was a master theorist chasing a singular vision. On the other hand, Tolstoy was a hedgehog. Tolstoy also had a strong desire to penetrate the first causes. He longed for a universal explanation, sorry, a universal explanatory principle that made the chaos of life more coherent. But the gap between what he wanted and who he was was too big to bridge. Tolstoy's tragedy was that Tolstoy looked for a harmonious universe, but everywhere he found war and disorder. Tolstoy was a battering ram that attacked weak metaphysical structures, but his deepest spiritual need was to be stopped by an immovable obstacle. It was not to be. The bottom line, Berlin describes Tolstoy as a, a fox bitterly intent upon seeing like a hedgehog does. Tolstoy was by nature not a visionary. His 
ability to perceive differences, specificities, and idiosyncrasies left his desire for a vision of the whole unfulfilled. Very cool. There's a few links there as well on this post. Why Tolstoy disliked Shakespeare, and why we really take drugs according to Tolstoy. Might be some interesting reads there. Maybe we can dive into them in a future episode. But thank you very much, Bookworm21, for linking us to that article and breaking it down like that. Very, very cool. Now, Book 11, Chapter 31. Why is Natasha so transfixed with the moaning of the unknown man miles away? And why was Andre's reaction to Natasha... Oh, sorry, was Andre's reaction to... One more time. Was Andre's reaction to Natasha what you thought it would be? Why is Natasha so focused on meeting Andre? How will their conversation go, and how will the Rostov family react once they learn of her midnight conversation? Well, I think I can see why they wanted to meet, and why Natasha wanted to meet. You know, it's her love interest, right? They've got a history. And now he's on his deathbed, and she wants to be there for him. Makes sense to me. Why is she so transfixed on the moaning? I think she's perceiving that maybe that moaning is, you know, what Andre is feeling, or maybe it's even coming from Andre. Ripster 66 says, Oh, Natasha, so dramatic and mysterious. No one comes right out and talks to her about the moaning or about Prince Andre, but everyone knows she's obsessing about him and his presence so nearby. I can imagine that Natasha desperately wants to see Andre, as was a huge part of her former life. With Moscow abandoned and burning, it seems there is a clear delineation of before that event and after. Kind of like before and after 9-11 for the folks in the US. He was part of that before time, yet here he is. I'm sure she has regrets and sees his presence as some sort of sign. Twisted Every Way says, Oh Natasha, I'm sure she thinks Andre being with them is a kind of sign. I like that Sonia told her, even though of course that's all she can think about, I like that Sonia is always in Natasha's corner. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I don't understand all the secrecy here. Tell Natasha that Andre is injured and traveling with them. And if she wants to, let her see him. Why not? I get that they're trying to protect her, but he much worse would. It, how much worse, worse would it be if he dies and she finds out only afterwards? Yeah, I agree with that. I don't understand the secrecy. I, I would have assumed that as soon as she found out he was traveling with them, that she would want to immediately see him. And that would be pretty understandable. Alright, another chapter, here we go, this is chapter 32, book 11, chapter 32, where is it, there it is, okay, I'll just resize my window so it's a bit easier to read, and here we go, seven days had passed since Prince Andre found himself in the ambulance station on the fields of Borodino, his feverish state and the inflammation of his bowels which were injured were in the doctor's opinion sure to carry him off. But on the seventh day he ate with pleasure a piece of bread with some tea, and the doctor noticed that his temperature was lower. He had regained consciousness that morning. The first night after they left Moscow had been fairly warm, and he had remained in the Kalish, but at Mistischi, the wounded man himself asked to be taken out and given some tea. The pain caused by his removal into the hut had made him groan aloud and again lose consciousness. When he had been placed on his camp bed, he lay for a long time motionless with closed eyes. Then he opened them and whispered softly, and the tea. His remembering such a small detail everyday life astonished the doctor. He felt Prince Andre's pulse 
and to his surprise and dissatisfaction found it had improved. He was dissatisfied because he knew by experience that if this patient did not die now, he would do so a little later with greater suffering. Timakin, the red-nosed major of Prince Andrei's regiment, had joined him in Moscow and was being taken along with him, having found, sorry, having been wounded in the leg at the Battle of Borodino. They were accompanied by a doctor, Prince Andrei's valet, his coachman and two orderlies. They gave Prince Andrei some tea. He drank it eagerly, looking with feverish eyes at the door in front of him and trying, sorry, as if trying to understand and remember something. I don't want any more. Is Timokin here? He asked. Timokin crept along the bench to him. I'm here, Your Excellency. How's your wound? Mine, sir. All right, but how about you? Prince Andrei again pondered as if trying to remember something. Couldn't one get a book? He asked. What book? The Gospels. I haven't one. The doctor promised to procure it for him and began to ask him how he was feeling. Prince Andrei answered all his questions reluctantly but reasonably and then said he wanted a bolster placed under him as he was uncomfortable and in great pain. The doctor and valet lifted the cloak which, with which he was covered and making wry faces at the noisome smell of mortifying flesh that came from the wound began examining the dreadful place. The doctor was very much displeased about something and made a change in the dressings, turning the wounded man over so that he groaned again and grew unconscious and delirious from the agony. He kept asking them to get him the book and put it under him. What trouble would it be to you, he said. I have not got one. Please get it for me and put it under for a moment, he pleaded in a piteous voice. The doctor went into the passage to wash his hands. You fellows have no conscience, said he to the valet who was pouring water over his hands. For just one moment I didn't look after you. It's such pain, you know, What I wonder, uh, that I wonder how he can bear it. By the Lord Jesus Christ, I thought we had put something under him, said the valet. The first time Prince Andre understood where he was and what was the matter with him and remembering being wounded and how he was when he asked to be carried into the hut after his collision stopped at Mistichy. After growing confused from the pain, while being carried into the hut, he again regained consciousness and, while drinking tea, once more recalled all that had happened to him and, above all, vividly remembered the moment at the ambulance station when, at the sight of the sufferings of a man he disliked, those new thoughts had come to him which promised him happiness. And those thoughts, though now vague and indefinite, again possessed his soul. He remembered that he had now a new source of happiness and that this Happiness had something to do with the Gospels. That was why he asked for a copy of them. The uncomfortable position in which they had put him and turned him over again confused his thoughts, and when he came to himself a third time, it was in the complete stillness of the night. Everybody near him was sleeping. A cricket chirped from across the passage. Someone was shouting and singing in the street. Cockroaches rustled on the table, on the icons, and on the walls, and a big fly flopped at the head of the bed and around the candle beside him, the wick of which was charred and had shaped itself like a mushroom. His mind was not in a normal state. A healthy man usually thinks of, feels, and remembers innumerable things simultaneously, but has the power and will to select one sequence of thoughts or events on which to fix his whole attention. A healthy man can tear himself away from the deepest reflections to say a civil word to someone who comes in and can then return again to his own thoughts. But Prince Andre's mind was not in a normal state in that respect. 
All the powers of his mind were more active and clearer than ever, but they acted apart from his will. Most diverse thoughts and images occupied him simultaneously. At times his brain suddenly began to work with a vigour, clearness and depth it had never reached when he was in health. But suddenly, in the midst of its work, it would turn to some unexpected idea, and he had not the strength to turn it back again. Yes, a new happiness was revealed to me, of which man cannot be deprived, he thought, as he lay in the semi-darkness of the quiet hut, gazing fixedly before him with feverish wide eyes. Happiness lying beyond material forces outside the material influences that act on man, a happiness of the soul alone, the happiness of loving. Every man can understand it, but to conceive it and enjoin it was possible only for God. But how did God enjoin that law, and why was the sun and suddenly the sequence of these thoughts broke off and prince andre heard without knowing whether it was a delusion or reality a soft whispering voice incessantly and rhythmically repeating pity 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 and then titi and then again pity 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 and titi once more at the same time he felt that above his face above the very middle of it some strange airy structure was being erected out of slender needles or splinters, to the sound of this whispered music. He felt that he had to balance carefully, though it was difficult, so that this airy structure should not collapse, but nevertheless it kept collapsing, and again slowly rising to the sound of whispered rhythmic music. It stretches, stretches, spreading out and stretching, said Prince Andre to himself, while listening to this whispering and feeling the sensation of this drawing out, and the construction of this edifice of needles, he also saw by glimpses a red halo around the candle, and heard the rustle of the cockroaches and the buzzing of the fly that flopped against his pillow and his face. Each time the fly touched his face, it gave him a burning sensation, and yet, to his surprise, it did not destroy the structure, though it knocked against the very region of his face where it was rising. But besides this, there was something else of importance. It was something white by the door, a statue of a sphinx, which also oppressed him. But perhaps that's my shirt on the table, he thought, and that's my legs, and that is the door, and why is it always stretching and drawing itself out, and pity, 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 and titi, and pity, 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 that's enough, please, leave off. Prince Andre painfully entreated someone, and suddenly thoughts and feelings again swam to the surface of his mind with peculiar clearness and force. Yes, love, he thought again quite clearly, but not love which loves for something, for some quality, for some purpose, or for some reason, but the love which I, while dying, first experienced when I saw my enemy, and yet loved him. I experienced that feeling of love which is the very essence of the soul and does not require an object. Now again I feel that bliss, to love one's neighbours, to let to love one's enemies, to love everything, to love God in all his manifestations. It's possible to love someone dear to you with human love, but an enemy can only be loved by divine love. That is why I experienced such joy when I felt that I loved that man. What has become of him? Is he alive? When loving with human love, one may pass from love to hatred, but divine love cannot change. No, neither death nor anything else can destroy it. It is the very essence of the soul. Yet how many people have I hated in my life, and all of them all I loved and hated none as I did her. And he vividly pictured to himself Natasha, not as he had done in the past, with nothing but her charms, which gave him delight, but for the first time picturing to himself her soul. And he understood her feelings, 
her sufferings, shame and remorse. He now understood for the first time all the cruelty of his rejection of her, the cruelty of his rapture with her. If only it were possible for me to see her once more, just once, looking into those eyes, to say, pity, 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 and titty, and pity, 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 boom, flopped the fly, and his attention was suddenly carried into another world, a world of reality and delirium in which something peculiar, sorry, something particular was happening. In that world, some structure was still being erected and did not fall, something was still stretching out, and the candle with its red halo was still burning, and the same shirt-like sphinx lay near the door, but beside all this something creaked. There was a whiff of fresh air, and a new white sphinx appeared standing at the door, and that sphinx had the pale face and shining eyes of the very Natasha of whom he had just been thinking. Oh, how oppressive this continual delirium is! thought Prince Andre, trying to drive that face from his imagination, but the face remained before him with the force of reality and drew nearer. Prince Andre wished to return to that former world of pure thought, but he could not, and delirium drew him back into its domain. The soft whispering voice continued its rhythmic murmur. Something oppressed him and stretched out, and the strange face was before him. Prince Andre collected all his strength in an effort to recover his senses. He moved a little, and suddenly... There was a ringing in his ears, a dimness in his eyes, and like a man plunged into water, he lost consciousness. When he came to himself, Natasha, that same living Natasha, whom, of all people, he most longed to love with this new, pure, divine love that he had been revealed to him, was kneeling before him. He realized that it was the real living Natasha, and he was not surprised, but quietly happy. Natasha, motionless on her knees, she was unable to stir, with frightened eyes riveted on him, was restraining her sobs. Her face was pale and rigid, only in the lower part of it something quivered. Prince Andre sighed with relief, smiled and held out his hand. You, he said, how fortunate. With a rapid but careful movement, Natasha drew nearer to him on her knees and taking his hand, carefully bent her face over it and began kissing it, just touching it lightly with her lips. Forgive me, she whispered, raising her head and glancing at him. Forgive me. I love you, said Prince Andre. Forgive. Forgive what, he asked. Forgive me for what I have done, faltered Natasha, in a scarcely audible broken whisper, and began kissing his hand more rapidly, just touching it with her lips. I love you more better than before, said Prince Andre, lifting her face with his hand so as to look into her eyes. Those eyes filled with happy tears gazed at him timidly, compassionately, and with joyous love. Natasha's thin, pale face with its swollen lips was more than plain. It was dreadful, but Prince Andre did not see that. He saw her shining eyes, which were beautiful. They heard the sound of voices behind them. Peter the valet, who was now wide awake, had roused the doctor. Timokin, who had not slept at all because of the pain in his leg, had long been watching all that was going on, carefully covering his bare body with the sheet as he huddled up on his bench. "'What's this?' said the doctor, rising from the bed. "'Please go away, madam.' At that moment a maid sent by the countess, who had noticed her daughter's absence, knocked at the door. Like a somnambulist aroused from her sleep, Natasha went out of the room, and returning to her hut fell, sobbing on her bed. From that time, during all the rest of the Rostov's journey, at every halting place and wherever they spent the night, Natasha never left the wounded Bolkonsky, and the doctor had to admit that he had not expected from a young girl either such firmness or such skill in nursing a wounded man. Dreadful as the Countess imagined it would be, should Prince Andre die in her daughter's arms during the journey, as judging by what the doctor said it seemed might easily happen, 
she could not oppose Natasha. Though with the intimacy now established between the wounded man and Natasha, the thought occurred that should he recover, their former engagement would be renewed. No one, least of all Natasha and Prince Andre, spoke of this. The unsettled question of life and death, which hung not only over Bolkonsky but over all Russia, shut out all other considerations. Alright, there we go. Another chapter done. Good chapter. Sad. Sad chapter. Interesting to see from like the point of view of a delirious dying man. Alright, have your say about it on the subreddit and I'll see you tomorrow.